You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Lord, may we feel your presence. Now, Lord, I've had a few days off this week. But, Lord, when you go to Florida and you walk in some of these theme parks, dear Lord, you see a lot of things. You're constantly turning your head. Lord, I did the best I could, but, Lord, there were times that, dear Lord, it was difficult. So, Lord, I ask you, dear Lord, right now publicly to cleanse me. I pray, dear Lord, for any idle glance, anything, dear Lord. You know I did the best I could, but, dear Lord, it's... uh, It's a different world down there. And I pray, dear Lord, that you might cleanse my heart. Let me be a vessel that you can use. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if there's anyone else in this room that may need to spend a moment just making sure their hearts are clean and holy and pure before you, may they do that now. Because, Lord, it's not just a matter of the one that gives the word. It's a matter of the people that receive it. So cleanse our hearts, Lord, and may you find a clean vessel to use for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. (coughs) Then uh, begin a series called Rapture, where we've been talking about this event that Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, that he writes this church to the this letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, Listen, I don't want you to be ignorant, so let me explain some things to you. And he then begins to clarify some things, and he basically says to this church that there's going to come a day, a moment in time, somewhere out there in the future. In the world, you know, Peter says this, Paul says it, it'll be like a thief that comes in the night. There'll be an element of surprise. But we, the church, are going to be raptured. Paul uses the word called up, snatched, to be taken away. In other words, at some point, somewhere out there in the future, God's going to invade creation once again, And he's going to take his bride, the church, the ecclesia, ekkaleo, those of us that have heard the call of Christ, have responded positively to it, and we're going to be part of the body of Christ, and we're going to be called up. In the Bible, Paul said this. He said, we're not going to precede those who have gone asleep. And so if you've lost some a loved one and you're saying, well, you know, what's going to happen to them? The Bible says that, listen, I don't know how to explain it all, Uh, Jesus said to the thief, absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Your loved ones are with the Lord right now. They're believers and they gave their life to Christ. They're with the Lord. But they're resurrected. Their new bodies, one day, Paul said, are going to come up out of the ground. And you may say, well, that's a strange thing. Let me tell you, folks, it's no different than when God reached out in the dust of the earth and formed Adam and Eve. If he can call us out of the dust of the earth, Then one day the Bible says that he's going to resurrect those that have died, that are in Christ. We're going to be caught up together with them in the air. They're going to have their resurrected body. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And that is this event that we call the rapture of the church. And Paul said in verse 18 of that chapter, he said, listen, I want you, parakaleo, I want you to comfort, I want you to comfort one another with those words. 
And so we basically said this. We've said this over the last couple of weeks, that the early New Testament church, they lived in expectation of that event. They went around greeting each other with this word, Maranatha, Lord come quickly. Paul said, we who are alive and remain. Paul uses a personal pronoun which gives us the indication that actually Paul believed that he would be alive and that he would be taken up as well. So Paul lived with that expectation. Peter, we look, Peter lived with that expectation. And listen, though it's been 2,000 years, you and I need to live with that expectation, right? Peter tells us this in his letter. He wrote to persecuted Christians. He said, listen, he said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he prefaced that by saying, hey, listen, if time drags, a thousand years is as a day, a day is as a thousand years. You don't worry about that. You just be ready. Let me ask you something. Are you ready? The language of Zimbabwe, the Shona people, are you ready to go to heaven? Are you ready? And so today we're kind of continuing on that theme. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23 because last week after the service in a conversation with a few people, I, had, uh, I, I took this passage of Scripture to kind of expand on something and I want to do that now. So Matthew chapter 23 verse 37. And if you don't have a Bible, get near somebody who does, okay? In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 37, we all remember these words. Jesus here is looking out over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I want you to look at the next part. But you were not willing. Look, now look at verse 38. I want you to underline that if you've got a pen. I want you to dog ear that page of your Bible and I want you to come back to that this week and I want you to reflect on it. In verse 38, these are the last words that he will say to the nation of Israel, to the Israelites corporately as a people. In verse 38, he says, Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, verse 39, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that passage is a powerful indictment against the nation of Israel. It's a, an indictment against the religious system of that day. And you and I need to see that passage because what it does is it sets the stage for Matthew chapter 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse. It's the Matthew 24 and 25 where Jesus gives a sermon on his coming. He talks about his coming and he gives the longest answer that he's ever given to any question that is posed against him. Now here, if you'll notice, now notice something here. Whose house is it? Jesus would always say things like, listen to this, look this way. My father's house. My father's house shall be called a house of, finish it, prayer. 
He repeatedly would always remind the religious system, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, those religious leaders, those scribes, he would remind them, this is my father's house. It'll be called a house of prayer. He constantly was reminding of this. But in verse 38, what does he say there? Whose house is it now? He says, it's your house and it's been left to you. And he uses the word there, desolate, Eremos, which in the Greek is the idea of being solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited. It's the picture of, listen to this, it's the picture of a flock that has been abandoned by its shepherd. Eremos. So what Jesus says to the nation of Israel, he says, this, this temple is your house. It's been left to you, Eremos, desolate. In other words, it's uninhabited by God. And it's been set now for judgment. And then in verse 39, he gives a messianic passage. He says to the Jews... You will not see me again until you say, blessed, and that word blessed is happy, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which right now they are rejecting. You will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wrote this quote down. Here the entire temple and the religious order of his day is corrupt and it's ready for judgment. So what happens here in the close of of Matthew chapter 23 is that Jesus is making a strong statement to the nation of Israel. In fact, it is so strong that in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples are somewhat confused about it and they turn to Jesus and say, listen, we don't understand. We're the covenant people. We are under the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and, and God has a responsibility to us so they at this point are confused it sets the stage for Matthew chapter 24 are you with me now now in Matthew chapter 24 beginning at verse 1 it says that Jesus left the temple now he's on his way to to the Mount of Olives again and it's there he's going to give an intensive lesson to his disciples. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he said? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. So first of all, again, we're looking at the context of the passage here. Jesus has made a powerful statement and what he is saying is, listen, now everyone listen very closely. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant was based on Levitical law, on blood sacrifice. If the Jew sinned, he simply made a sacrifice. At Passover, the entire nation went. The... the, the um, into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go in and he would make that sacrifice on behalf of the nation. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament is now simply been fulfilled. It's being put away because now there's a New Testament, a new covenant, and the blood of Jesus Christ is now what is going to wash away the sins of man. 
He's not only making an indictment against the temple there in Jerusalem, he's simply making a statement about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant that it has been fulfilled and now there's the New Covenant, what you and I are under today. So the disciples here now are trying to bring all of this together and somehow try to understand it because the religious system now was so corrupt and it was backed up by the government of Rome that there's a lot of confusion here. They need, they need some insight. You have to understand that to the Jew, to the disciples, their thought was this. They thought that at some point... Jesus, when the Messiah came, that he would beat all of his enemies, he would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, he would wrap his arms around the covenant people of Israel, and they would usher in this new kingdom, this new world order. The only problem was they saw it all as a single event. And Jesus now is beginning to clarify theologically that I know you're thinking the day of the Lord, but let me tell you something. There's the rapture of the church. Is that the second coming? No. Jesus is not going to put his feet yet on this earth. Paul said, we'll be called up. We're going to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord in the air. This is the rapture of the church. And then there, it down eventually... The rapture of the church initiates the tribulation in which the Antichrist, this political religious leader, along with the false prophet, begins to bring order to the confusion that has been left once the people of God have been removed. He brings order. He enters into an agreement with Israel. And things begin to click along until about three and a half years, in that seven years, when all of a sudden the Bible says great tribulation because the Antichrist goes in, sets himself up. Daniel called it the abomination of desolation begins to desecrate the temple there in Jerusalem, breaks his agreement with Israel, and before long the entire armies of the world, the nations of the world, are gathered in a place called the Valley of Megiddo for a battle that we call Armageddon. And it is only there when man is literally about to destroy everything that God will intervene and Jesus Christ will come in all of his glory. And he will save the nation of Israel in that hour. And they'll cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You and I will be there. We'll have front row seats. We won't be in the nosebleed section. Napoleon said when he saw the Valley of Megiddo, that place that Armageddon would be fought, Napoleon looked at it and said, my goodness, the perfect place for a battle. And so here's the context of the passage. And so now the disciples in Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus leaves the temple, these are, these are just old common men. These are just old country bumpkins gone to town. They're just, they're just looking around like this and they are enamored. This was built by Herod. And Edomian, and they didn't like that at all. He was not one of them, but he had built the temple in agreement and in coercion, in, 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 in agreement and with uh, with the Roman Empire. 
and they are enamored by this building. And Jesus says to them, he says, listen, I'm telling you, not one stone on this building will be left on another. You see, the nation of Israel had been in a working relationship with the government of Rome. The religious system that we talk about, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, made up that civil court called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was hand in hand with Caesar and with the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire said to the Sanhedrin, as long as you'll keep reasonable order and pay your taxes, then everything will be all right. And so the religious system had bought in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, had bought in with the Romans, and now they were controlling people. Jesus was a source of conflict for all of that. This is why he's on his way to the cross. And so here we have, in Matthew chapter 24, we have the disciples, they're enthralled. They're amazed, and yet they can't understand. This is the equivalent of somebody walking you around Washington, D.C. and saying to you, you see the White House, six months from now, it will be nothing but a pile of rubble. You would look at them, and it would literally shake your world if you put any credibility to what that person was saying. You would look at him and say, how do you know that? How can you be convinced? You mean to tell me that this monument, which is the monument that is known all over the world, will be a pile of rubble? Because see, it's not just simply the fact of the government. If, if somebody looked at you and said the White House would be a pile of rubble, what they're also saying is the entire democratic system of our government and our economy will collapse and we will simply be destroyed. So to the disciples, they were struggling with how to understand this. This was a radical statement to them. Now, in verse 3, in verse 2, Jesus says, See all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us. Now, watch this. Look closely. When will this happen? That's number one, question number one. Question number two, what will be the sign of what? Of your coming. Number three, question number three, and of the end, and if you have, the, if you have a King James, it says the consummation or the end of the age. This verse leads to the longest answer that Jesus ever gives and the clearest presentation that we have of the end time. He uses the word there, eschatos, which is last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. And again, the Bible never discourages the believer, the child of God, from examining the prophecies of end time prophecy and looking at it. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. Jesus here talks about it. But they ask three questions. First of all, they say, Lord, when will this happen? And what they're asking is, when will the temple be destroyed? So Jesus is also talking about the fact in 70 AD, the Romans would come in and they would destroy the temple. They would take the Jewish people and they would scatter them to the ends of the Roman Empire. Just like the Assyrians had done, just like the Babylonians had done, just like the Greeks and the Medes had done, just like, and now the Romans would do. 
The nation of Israel that was so firmly entrenched, gathered around this Levitical system, gathered around this temple that had been built by Herod, what Jesus was saying is the temple's going to collapse, the system is no more, and all of a sudden you're going to be under a new covenant. And he went on to simply say this, and he said you're going to be scattered to the ends of the earth. Now listen to me closely. 2,000 years later, on May 15th, I think, 1948, the nation of Israel, you know what God did? God just reached out and did this. He just called his people back, firmly planted them once again, right there back once again in the promised land. 2,000 years later, it has never happened with no people, nowhere at any time in all of history. It was a miracle. And then you know what God began to do? I've been a missionary for years and missionaries have been trying to figure it out to this day because some of it was happening while we were on the field. All of a sudden, God said to the, Ber- God said to the Berlin Wall and the Eastern Bloc countries, take that thing out. I want my people to come home. Let's get rid of that. All of a sudden, hey, we, didn't, we really couldn't figure this one out because we had missionaries all over Soviet Union. All of a sudden, God looked at the Soviet Union. He said, let's just take care of that. We'll knock all that out. All of a sudden, God began to break down all the barriers, all the boundaries, as if God was reaching after 1948 and saying to the world's rulers and the governments of the world, it's time for my people to come home. And God has been gathering his people for over 50 years now, pulling them all home. Hey, down in Africa, you know what those Jews down in Africa are doing? They're being subsidized to go home. God's calling all his people home. And so Jesus here is about to answer the questions. He's going to talk about the destruction of the temple. He's going to talk about his coming, which which will clarify there's the rapture and the second coming. And the end of the age or the closing of time and as, as we know it. Remember, again, we, last week or a couple of weeks ago, I put a hymnal here and I said, if we took this hymnal and we say that this hymnal represents the beginning of time, in other words, God calls everything into being. And we put another hymnal over there and we said, that hymnal represents the end of the age or the consummation of the age. And then we took a Bible, a hardback Bible, and we put it between those two and we said, and this represents the church. There's going to come a day when God reaches in and snatches, takes his bride, his church, takes us out. So here we have a beginning of time. Here we have an end of time. And so what they were saying is, tell us, when will the temple be destroyed? The system will fall apart. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives the longest answer that he's ever given. And look at picking up, at, look at verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out. Are you listening? Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to his children. He's like a dad whose daughter is going off to college and he's saying, listen, you be careful. He's, it's like a dad looking at his son who's going to work his first job and he says, son, let me give you some things that you need to be aware of before you get into the working world. Jesus says the first sign will be deception. He says here in verse 4, he says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Christ and will deceive many. 
In other words, what Jesus said that as we approach that time when God begins to prepare to take his people out, we'll see more and more messianic figures. Messianic type figures, charismatic type figures, those people who lead followings and and gather a group of of people around them. Because you see, as as we move along, people are more, they're hurting and and they're more confused and things are not going, you know, they're, they're looking for answers. Do you know that? Have you seen that? Everybody's looking for answers. They're saying to the government, they're saying to Washington, Washington, please fix our communities. Because most of our major cities are becoming bankrupt. How do you fix it? How do you fix this city? If you reject the church and you throw the church out and you turn your back on Christ, then automatically you look to government, you look to a political system. Surely somebody can fix us. My friend, only God can fix Jackson. Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, Jacksonville, Orlando. Only God can fix New York City. Mayor Bloomberg sure can't. So Jesus says that as we approach that time that there'll be multitudes of ministries and charismatic figures and world religions that will be offering all kinds of answers. And they're everywhere. Today we have one of the most aggressive atheistic movements that has ever been in our history. In other words, the top-selling books today when you walk into a bookstore are atheistic philosophies today. People are not only turning their backs on Christ, we're not only turning our backs on our spiritual mooring and dropping our, cutting ourselves off from our spiritual anchors, we're beginning to look in areas that don't, don't even make sense because people are looking for answers, solutions. They want something to give them some hope. We're doped up, we're drugged up, we're, 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 we're living on alcohol, we're living on drugs because we simply are looking for an answer and it's not in a bottle, it's not in a bottle of pills, it's not in alcohol. We are sexed beyond all, it's unbelievable. And nothing's working. And Jesus said, we don't, we don't come to church. We don't look to the Bible. We don't look to God's Holy Spirit because we're too busy looking for answers somewhere else. And Jesus said, don't be deceived because there'll be multitudes of messianic type figures that will offer some deliverance. If you'll read this book, attend this conference, watch this program, look at this. And my friend, they're everywhere and they're all over the place. And so Jesus says to us, he says to his children, he says, listen, you don't be deceived. Are you with me? Say amen. I wrote this down. It is critical that you and I turn our TVs off and begin to learn and study and aggressively begin to know our Bibles in order that we are able to understand what we believe because it is being shaken to its very foundation. He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Jesus said there'll be unrest on the earth. Have you ever seen so much unrest? 
It seems like there's wars or the possibility of war or confusion and arguing. Let, let me ask you this. Have you seen more hostility growing up in our own land? You take your life in your own hands nowadays when you drive on the interstate. People are angry. They're cutting each other off. And it seems like today they're more vehement than they have ever been. People are fighting and shooting and killing. Gangs are getting together and taking on this gang and that gang and drug lords doing this and doing that. And, but it's not just that. It's in homes today. Many homes today. Marriages today are breaking down. Homes are breaking down. Why? Because we have an enemy. Listen, your enemy knows the Word of God and he may know better than anybody in this room that his days are numbered. And you know what he says to that demonic host? We better get busy, guys. We don't have much time left. Wow. Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars and they're everywhere. I wrote down some statements here. Number one, the nations of the world today, listen, the nations of the world today, including third world countries, spend the bulk of their wealth on what? On defense, as do we. Third world nations, many of them in the midst of severe famine, have invested everything, the bulk of their income, into their war machine for defense and for aggressive movements. You see, famine is caused by a desire for war. The world, it's been proven... The world could solve all of its hunger problems if all of a sudden there were peace around the world and we were able to take what we spend in defense and begin to pour that into building and maintaining agriculture and in creating, uh, solving the problem of hunger. You know, you look at our own country, it's Veterans Day. Sheila said, yeah, I recognize. How many of you are veterans? How many of you have ever served in the military? Raise your hand. We thank God for you. I want you to know that. I'm one of you. But I want you to know this. America today is absolutely turning the military into an idol. We almost sound as if we're worshiping military today, as if somehow they're the answer. They're they're just one more answer. We are enthralled and drunk on our power today. Instead of relying on God, we rely on our armies, on our ability to get us out of any situation. Do you remember that scripture, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was was God's words to the nation of Israel. Then let me say this. Have you ever noticed how America is becoming more and more isolated from the rest of the world? Snowden, some of the leaks, some of the problems as to how we get our information. Have you noticed how we're becoming more and more isolated? I believe that war and famine go hand in hand. In fact, let me show you something real quick. Take a, take a right and go over to Revelation chapter 6. I want you to see this. In Revelation chapter 6, this is important because in, in the book of Revelation, and the word revelation means to unveil. John, who was the only disciple who died a natural death, was at one time exiled on the Isle of Patmos. The Roman government had exiled John, this early apostolic father, and they had and they had put him they had put him on this rock-busting prison island 
where they would break rocks and use that to pave the roads of the Roman Empire. John is in a situation to where he encounters the angel of the Lord. In that moment, the angel of the Lord, you know, there comes a moment in the early part of Revelation when John said he saw what looked like a door. You see, to a Jew, to a Hebrew, there was the first heaven, there was the second heaven, first heaven. If you go outside, look at that blue sky, first heaven. If you went out there tonight and looked up there, you'd see the second heaven. But then, you remember Paul used these words? Paul said, I was called up to the third heaven. What is that? John said he saw a door open. It was as if in the third heaven. It was all of a sudden like a door was open. Just like Jacob when there was a ladder going up into heaven. It seems that periodically, just like Elijah when he called a chariot of fire and went up into heaven. It, It says that all of a sudden the third heaven was open and John said, I was told to come up there. And John is now in the observatory of God. It is the picture, it is the picture of this. And let me somehow use this. I hope Jeffrey doesn't need this chair for people on the website. They won't know what in the world I'm doing now. But it is the picture of this. Let's go back to our illustration. And let me say this. Here's the beginning of time. We say this hymnal represents the beginning of time. We say that this hymnal represents the end of time. We say that this Bible here between the two represents the New Testament church, the ecclesia. John is on, John now is called up into heaven. He's in the throne room of God. He begins to describe what he's seeing. At one point, are you watching? This is the picture. God is transcendent, which means theologically that he is, can be outside of this thing that we call time and space. He is in a position to where he can look at time from the beginning, from Adam all the way to the very end, the last. He can look at our lives. So God is transcendent. He's above his creation. He can invade it, which he did through Jesus Christ. He can step into it, but he's not bound by it like you and I. So here he is, and what happens is God says to John, John, come up here, and I want you to see what's going to happen in the end. I'm getting to unveil, which in the Greek is a picture of pulling back curtains, and John, I want you to watch this, I want you to see this, and then I want you to write. And so here's John filled with the Holy Spirit now called up in the third heaven, who's now in the throne room of God, and he's feverishly writing what is almost beyond comprehension. Do you remember last week when we looked at the image of the beast? The word image is the word icon, picture. In the, in the language of the African, they call it mufananitso. Mufananitso means a picture. John said all of a sudden, John said, I don't know what it was, but the Antichrist was able to make this picture come alive. He began to speak it began to speak and it began to, it began to move. I didn't understand it. It was an icon. It was a picture. It was a mufananitso. But all of a sudden, it was given breath and it began to speak to me. Well, could it be possible that he's looking at HDTV or computer monitors? I don't know. But here's John writing. And he's writing what he's saying. And he writes about the 
seven seals. He writes about the seven trumpets. He writes about the seven bowls because once God does this, then it begins to initiate the tribulation. The Antichrist comes to power. The tribulation begins and all of a sudden things are accelerated. And Jesus says, John, I want you to see these signs. And one of those signs is there's unrest on the world. In Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 7, man, I've got to close in a moment, but he said, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. If you look at chapter 5, let me tell you what John said. John, here John is, is in the throne room of God. John said, all of a sudden I looked and there was the throne of God. And John said, all of a sudden I looked and there was a hand. And it was holding up a rolled up scroll sealed with seven seals, which was what a Roman, in the Roman Empire, a will, a will, a will like you and I have, was sealed with seven seals. John says, the one that was seated on the throne held up the title deed to creation. And the cry began to go out through heaven, who is worthy to open the seals? In other words, who's worthy to take the will and to be the rightful owner of creation? And John said, I looked, and there was silence in heaven. There was silence everywhere. There was absolute silence. And John said, I began to weep. And all of a sudden, one of the angels tapped John on the shoulder and said, Look, behold the Lamb of God. And the Bible says, listen to the picture of the Trinity. Out of the throne of God raised up Jesus Christ. And he began to break the seals. Four horsemen, you've heard of them? Begins to break those seals. Listen to them, listen to them. In, in Revelation chapter 6, he said, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the living creatures say in a loud, in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This is the picture of the Antichrist because he has a bow, but he does not have arrows. What he does is he's able to negotiate and do what he's able to do, bring order to a confused world by a peaceful resolution. Verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, its rider was given power to take peace. We had peace in that first seal. Now the peace has been taken away by the very one who promised to give it the Antichrist. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. Now he's, the only, he's under the sovereignty of a holy God. To him was given a large sword. So all of a sudden he breaks that agreement and in the midst of three and a half years into the tribulation, there is the great tribulation. All of a sudden, there's war. War like we've never known before. Let's read on. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. In other words, leave the wealthy alone. And this is the picture of humanity in the midst of famine, in the midst of war, trying to make meat and it'll take a day's wages to buy enough to buy a loaf of bread. 
Read on. Because here we have war, here we have famine. Verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth the living creature saying, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, its rider. Listen, listen, are you looking? Here's John. John's in the third heaven. John's in the throne room of God. God John's in the, he's in the control tower here. He's looking, and God begins, as Jesus, the Lamb of God, begins to break those seals. One seal, second seal. First of all, that first seal is a picture of the Antichrist. He brings peace. He promised peace. He brings a, co, a coercion, a cohesiveness to the world. They finally got their answer, and the Jews said, there he is, there's the Messiah. And all of a sudden, the second seal's broken. The second horseman begins to invade creation. And in a moment, that war begins to break out. War of such magnitude the world has never known before. Third seal begins to break because what follows war is famine. And all of a sudden, people, it takes a day's wages to try to get enough to feed their family. Now we come to the fourth seal. And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, verse 7, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. You say, this sounds strange to me. My friend John was simply getting a picture of unrest on the earth. Now, I'm going to close in a moment, but it's important. If you have to leave, leave. But he's not only talking about unrest on the earth. Jesus is not only talking about unrest on the earth. Wars and rumors of wars, nations, kingdoms fighting against one another. He says in verse 7 and 8, are you there? Let's look back at Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. He goes on to say, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes. The seals are broken. Judgment begins to fall on the earth. All these are the beginning of various pains. But look there at verse 7, latter part. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I want you to look this way. The Bible says this over and over again. The Bible alludes, the Bible alludes to this that the second coming, the coming of Christ, the end of the age, that the earth will travail like a woman in labor. Now, every woman who's had a baby understands this. All of a sudden, you look at your husband and you go, it's, it's time. What, now, Sheila and I, when Ledge, we were sitting in Shoney's and I'd ordered the chicken tender platter. And, and Jeff, I was just getting ready to eat, and all of a sudden, she's, I mean, he just set the, they just put this platter down. I was starving. She said, it's, it's time. I think, it, I, I think it's time. I said, no, it can't be time yet. I just got my plate. Can't you, can't you hold off a minute? Well, all the ladies in this room are laughing because you all know you can't hold off. Once nature begins to kick into progress, something is going to happen. Ladies, what's happening to your body? Your body is in the process of delivering, of setting free something that's been held hostage, that's been like a prisoner. Your body's getting ready to set it free. The picture here is, as we move toward the end of time, that the earth, there's not only unrest on the earth, there's unrest in the earth. Creation begins to sense it's getting close. Wow. The earth travails. 
Creation travails like the Bible says, like a woman in labor. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, Paul said it will be sudden and it will increase with intensity and it will increase with frequency. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. What time is it? Let me, let me go a moment longer. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. Take a, take a right and look at Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, you know, I never minded going long. I didn't mind a preacher going long as he made, as he, if he was constantly reminding me he knew he was going long. But in Romans chapter 8... In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, watch what Paul says here. Because Paul also is talking about what Jesus talked about, what Peter talked about. It's all the way through the Scripture. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, he said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation, are you watching? Say amen. Do you have it? Say amen. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Look at this, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Look this way real quickly. The creation was innocent when man fell in the garden. But do you know what God did? God cursed what? What? He cursed the ground. He cursed creation. He said to man, now all of a sudden, this created order, this earth is going to begin to rebel and work against you. And I've been around farmers, and they'll tell you that it's always rebelling, sending up weeds, killing seed, sending insects, not sending rain, sending too much rain, flooding your fields. But Jesus said the earth travails like, listen, ladies, like a woman that's giving birth. Jesus said there'll be earthquakes. John says it in Revelation. Paul says it in Romans. He said the earth will travail. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of what? Childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, listen to this. Look this way. There are three groans in Romans 8. There's the groan of creation, there's the groan of you and I, and there's the groan of the Holy Spirit. Look at it real quickly. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Have you been groaning lately trying to live right? It's really tough, isn't it? In the world you have tribulation. It's tough to live a godly life. Holiness hurts sometimes. You're in a sin-depraved, broken, fallen-apart world. Paul said, you have, a, you have a treasure, but it's in an earthen vessel. And boy, that earthen vessel sure fights against the treasure, doesn't it? Just like the ground rebels against man as he tries to eke out a living. You know what is happening? This flesh, your body, your natural tendencies, your natural inclinations, desires of your flesh are warring, Paul said, against the spirit that is within you the earnest deposit of the Holy Spirit that God's put in you. You're groaning, I'm groaning. But watch what Paul says. 
Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. In the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. You know what happens when you and I are battling and we're failing and we're falling and we're fumbling with difficulties with a sin which does so easily beset us or we're battling just trying to to live a godly and holy life and, and the world is warring against us. You know what happens when sometimes we get so low and we think, I just don't even know if I can pray right now. You know what the Holy Spirit is doing in you? All of a sudden the Holy Spirit, direct line to God, begins to groan in ways that you and I don't even begin to understand, making intercession for us. In the midst of walking around that campus of Universal Studios and seeing Dilling constantly with women, the way they were dressed, and and over and over and over again, dealing with that, battling with it, I get a text from an African pastor in Zimbabwe. You know what he said to me? He said, I'm praying for you right now that God's Holy Spirit will protect you from the evil one. It's like a massive family all around. Jeff, that was Simon Jaina. It's like a massive family all around the world that is joined together, linked together by the Holy Spirit. Wow. I'm going to close with this and I promise. I went online because I was curious about earthquakes. I went online and I went to the official site that registers earthquakes. It was unbelievable. I had chills up and down me. I think out loud I begin to say, my, my goodness, look at this. I was mesmerized. One expert, while I was researching, he made this statement. An expert said, it's as if the earth is cracking up. Look at the storm in the Philippines right now. I was looking at this moment, there were over 3,000 noticeable earthquakes in Japan. There were 5,000 in Mexico, and there were twice that many in Korea. And according to October 23rd, there were 28 earthquakes, 2,800 earthquakes a month, and we're now averaging over 18,000 earthquakes a year. The Bible says that the earth will actually travail like a woman giving labor. And listen to this. When a woman is giving labor, she'll, she'll time the pains. Sheila looked at me and she said, because I, this was the third one, I said, how far apart are they? She said, about three minutes. If I get to chicken tenders, we got to get to the hospital. And then we get in the car, she goes, Nikki and Tina, she'd go, there's a, there's another, here, here comes another one. Oh, it hurts. Oh, and it subsided. And then she quiet down. Every lady in this room that's bore children knows what I'm talking about. And I said, oh, here, oh, here it comes again. And this time it'd be, it'd be more intense and, and they were getting closer together. And she, she looked at me and said, you need to hurry, you need to hurry. And, and, and hey, it's a great thing because we finally get to drive like we've always wanted to, like a bat out of hell. <laughs> the Bible says that once the church has been raptured and taken out and the signs, and 
I, say, I think we see shadows of those signs already. I think God is saying to us, you need to be ready. You need to get ready. I think the creation itself is more alert as to the second coming of Christ than the church. That's sad. Stand with me. Would you stand? Let me ask you again, are you ready? Do you know for certain? Are you certain? Listen to the words of this song. It's a, it's a popular Gaither song from years ago. It's called The King is Coming. The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the streets. All the builders' tools are silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives, they seize their labors. In the courtroom, there's no debate. Work on earth has been suspended as the king comes through the gate. The king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. The king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. Happy faces, they line the hallway. Those whose lives have been redeemed, broken homes that he has mended, those from prison he set free. Little children and the aged, hand in hand, all aglow. Those who were crippled, broken, and ruined are now clad in garments white as snow. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng. And the flurry of God's trumpets spell the end of sin and wrong. Regal robes are now unfolding. Heaven's grandstand, all is in place. Heaven's choir is now assembled and starts to sing amazing grace. The king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding and now his face I see. The king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. My friend, is he coming for you today? Do you know him today? Do you love the bottle? Do you love alcohol? Do you love sex? Do you love the promiscuity? Do you love your sin more than you love Christ? You're breaking his heart if you're one of his children. The Bible says that one thing he asked of us, his bride, he said, purify yourself. Isn't that strange? He doesn't say the whole, just sit still and let the Holy Spirit. He said, purify yourself. Take control. Get rid of those things. Do whatever you have to do. Get ready because the king is coming. And I don't want those wedding garments to be soiled when he calls me. When he calls in that moment when, listen, that moment when the law of gravity no longer works on you and he stands there midair with all of those family members and all of those people that you've loved and you've been waiting to see, if that comes in your lifetime and in my lifetime, you know, listen, I don't want the Lord to find me doing something that I'm going to be ashamed of. Lord, I want to be ready. I want to be ready.
Do you know Christ? Has there come that moment in your life that you gave him your heart and life and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell, but I know Jesus Christ loves me and he died for me and he paid the penalty of my sin and I invite him to come into my heart and forgive me and be the Lord and the master and the savior of my life. Have you done that? With heads bowed and with eyes closed and nobody looking around, I'm, I'm going to ask Reggie, if he would, to come. I'm going to ask. Uh, I think that's about all we have as counselors. Our counselors are out today. But with heads bowed and with eyes closed, are you ready? Do you know Christ? Are you prepared? Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now and we pray, dear Lord, that you would wrap your arms around this bride and Fill us, dear Lord, with a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit, dear Lord. Do something in us today that when we walk out of here, people will say, what happened to you at church? Something's different about you. God, help us to purify ourselves because, Lord, sometimes it is so hard in this fallen world that we live in. There's so much temptation. There's so many battles. There's so much the availability of sin, and there's not only the availability. You said, Lord, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the end, and it seems to be, dear Lord, we live in those days. Lord, there are men and women in this room that are just broken down. They're tired of battling and struggling. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them right now. That, dear Lord, though the enemy may be at their shoulder, harassing, accusing, slandering, which is what he does so well, Father of the lie. That, dear Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would wrap your arms and, and say to that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, who may right now be living in rebellion against you, to say to them, to whisper to them, I still love you. You're still mine. Forever yours. That's the song that we sing. I'm forever yours, Lord. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never walks out on me. And so, Lord, I pray that, dear Lord, for those that may be battling right now and they're falling prey to the, to the ploys of the enemy, I ask you, dear Lord, to first of all wrap your arms around them and love them, reassure them of their salvation, and then begin to encourage them to purify themselves, to take every thought captive, to remove any resemblance of the enemy's avenues in their life. I pray, dear Lord, for those that may be, dear Lord, here today that have quit talking to people about Christ. They're tired of getting beat up at the workplace. They're tired of getting made fun of. I pray, dear Lord, that you would encourage them to be faithful, to share their faith, and to never give up. We are told to keep going and telling and never to stop. I pray for those in this room that may not know you today who simply look at their life and say, I don't know, no, I'm not ready, but I want to be. I pray, dear Lord, that even in this moment, they would begin to come and say to Reggie maybe, to say, Reggie, I don't know, I want to be sure. I don't want to be left. God, would you speak to us today? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. Christ has spoken to your heart. Whatever decision there may need to be made, and it may be just together here at this altar. Isn't it great? Look at this. I didn't think she was here. Emily Williams, whose dad has been just between life and death, carried by an ambulance, put on a breathing machine, 
and I see you, she's here. She's here. She's not only here. She's not asking anybody to minister to her. She's sitting here with tears in her eyes, ready to minister to you. Wow. Wow. If you don't know Christ, would you come? Would you talk to one of these two people right here? Let them share with you how you can know that. Would you do that? You come. May never be a moment like this one.